word, turn with me to Job chapter 32. Job chapter 32. As you're turning, I want you just sort of to imagine with me this morning that you find yourself um, in a strange room. You look around and you're in unfamiliar surroundings. And as you're in this room, you are approached by a masked man. You begin to feel some drowsiness and you realize that, um, that you have been drugged. And you sense a sense of danger. As you lose consciousness, you look at this masked man coming towards you and you see the gleam of a sharp blade in his hand. The difference between whether that man is a surgeon or an assassin depends on whether the character of the individual or the intent. There are times when we go through similar situations in life, and what matters is what is the character of the person who is doing this work, what is the intent of the person that is doing this work. When we look at the things that God allows and God uses in our lives, it is important for us to look at what is the character of God, what is the intent of God. Job has been going through some difficult times, to say the least. Job has not been, as he anticipated perhaps, encouraged by his friends. We saw last week the three friends that came. Maybe some of you have been in places where you saw someone coming that you hoped would encourage you, and after 10 or 15 minutes you wish they would leave you. Now, not anybody around you. I know some of y'all are looking at your spouse, and that's the wrong time to look at your husband or wife. Sometimes you're maybe laying there in a hospital bed and you've been by yourself for a while and you're just anxious for any company at all and someone shows up and after a short visit you figure that anything else at all would have been better than what you're experiencing. That's the case where Job is. Instead of finding them, he says in his, in his answers to them, instead of them being a refreshing stream, he has found them to be a dry riverbed. He had hoped for something to refresh him. He calls, he says in chapter 16, he says, you are miserable comforters. You're terrible at this encouragement. You need to find something else to do. You really stink at this. You need to find something different. The next verse, he calls them windbags. Job was, Job was getting a little frustrated with his friends. I love the sarcasm that he uses in chapter 12 when he looks at these men and he says, surely you are the people and wisdom will die with you. He's not real happy with his friends as they come to try to encourage him. His frustration, as his frustration grows, so also grows his desire for self-justification. As they continue to say, you're wrong, you're wrong, he continues to say, no, I'm not wrong, I've done nothing wrong. This often happens in debates and arguments. I remember times when I was in Bible college and I'd hear a couple of friends and they'd get into these debates over theological minutiae, and they were arguing and debating, and this one sounded exactly like what this one was saying. They were just saying it in a different way. And the more they argued, the more frustrated they got, and back and forth they would go. And I just learned real quick just to step back from it and stay out of it. Sometimes this happens in families when there's arguments and debates. Not that any of the marriages in our church have any arguments or debates, but if you do, maybe you know somebody who does, and it starts escalating. It gets worse and worse, and it's almost like a it's almost like a, a, a relationship poker match. I see your anger and I'll raise you a little bit. And the next person comes back and it just gets worse and worse. And that's what takes place in Job's life. And as he goes on, he starts to justify himself. I'm not guilty. I didn't do this. Ultimately, one of his friends will start pointing out sins. 
that they think Job has committed. Job, they start out with, Job, you've done something wrong. But by the time they get to the end, they're pretty sure that Job has committed some horrendous sins. And Job answers back, no, I didn't do this. And he begins to say to them, look, if I were in your place, I'd be better at this. I would be encouraging you. He not only defends himself, now he begins to lash out at those around him. And ultimately, he will begin to say some things that are really some sinful things about God because he professes his rightness so strongly. He says, if, I were re- if the roles were reversed, he says. In this response, we see a little bit about the ugliness of the human nature and the sin that resides in our heart. Isn't it interesting that Job is described as, as the, the most righteous man of, in the world at that time? God said, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. And yet in Job's heart, there is an element of pride that is only brought out by the criticisms of his friends. These three friends have become an instrument of God's sanctification in Job's life. He brings them around him, and here's Job. It's a, boy, what a convicting thought. What a convicting thought it is that the most righteous person in the world, there's still an element of pride and sin in the heart. Don't ever think you have reached full sanctification. God is going to work in your heart. And sometimes we think we've got the outside. We, we don't have the, the actions of sin. We've got those covered. We don't do those things. But God digs deep into the heart, as Jesus did in Matthew 6 when he said, the sin starts in the heart. And he speaks here, and he speaks to the, the sin of the heart and the sin of the hand. But with Job, it's, it's so deep. When you think about some of you, you make a pot of tea and you put some tea bags in hot water. You make a cup of hot tea and you, you drop that bag in the hot water. The hot water does not create the flavor. The hot water simply brings out of the bag what was already in there. And there are times in our life where God, in order to show us that hidden sin that he's trying to reveal, will bring some heat into our lives. He'll put us in a hot water situation. He'll bring some critical friends around to show, hey, you're not quite as far along as you think. There's still this sin hidden in your heart, and he wants to draw it to our attention so that we may deal with it, so that we may know him in a greater way, give him greater glory, and walk more closely with him. And that's what God is doing in the life of Job. People say things like, follow your heart. Trust your heart. Or I love this one. Well, pastor, if I know my heart, you don't. Jeremiah chapter 17 says, the heart of man is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so even when we think we are at the best, there's still that element that God in his love wants to bring out of our lives. And so we come to chapter 32, and God takes Job to the next stage in his school of sanctification, his school of advanced learning. And Job is going to experience the humility of rebuke. And we see Job rebuked in his suffering. We see Job rebuked, first of all, by a young man named Elihu that we'll look at this morning, and next week we'll see by God's grace that he is rebuked by God himself. Job ends his speech in chapter 31, and he says back in verse 35, Oh, that one would hear me, 
Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me. I want God to answer me. I demand an answer from God. That's the point Job has gotten to. God owes me an answer. Let me just say that God does not owe us anything. Anything that we receive from God is only by grace. And Job has reached this point. And so in chapter 32, the three friends cease to answer Job, verse 1, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. As we look at this passage and we meet this young man named Elihu, I'm sort of reminded when he says, I've listened, uh, he, he goes through, and we'll read these verses in a moment, but as you do it, some of you will remember back to the good old days when they had good cartoons. And uh, how many of y'all remember Popeye the Sailor? Okay, a whole bunch of you. Do you remember what Popeye would say when... He just had all he could handle. He'd say, that's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. And that, then you knew it was on. I sort of picture Elihu thinking that. He has stood around through 30-something chapters, and he has listened to these miserable comforters and these windbags. And he has learned, listened to a very frustrated Job defend himself and justify himself. And finally, he has had enough, and he is going to stand up. Notice what he says. That it says in verse 2, watch for this. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu. Verse 3, and against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Uh, Elihu had waited till Job had spoken, because they were elder than he. Then Elihu, when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, look at this, then his wrath was kindled. We see Elihu's fervor. We see the, the passion of Elihu's heart. He waits. He stands back as long as he can. And he hears these three friends. And he hears Job. And he hears Job begin to justify himself. And he, he says, I'm righteous. And he listens to these friends. And he says, they couldn't give an answer. Now, they wasn't for lack of trying. They did everything they could until they finally had nothing else to say to Job to persuade him. And Elihu is angered by this. Elihu presents some speeches, four speeches, but he is angry because Job is a man that has persistently claimed to be right in a way that indicates God is wrong. He's angry at the three friends because they found no answer yet condemned Job. Elihu is right to be indignant over the glory and the name of God. There are those over the years who have condemned Elihu. It's been pretty popular to look at him and say, well, he's just an angry young man that should have kept his mouth shut. God doesn't even acknowledge him. God doesn't even speak to him. And therefore, he's, he's wrong. And then there are those that argue for other reasons. Though this is why he's right. Look, we need to evaluate Elihu not on what we think about him, but on what he says. Was what he said right? How does it line up with what we know about God? And as we see this, we see that his fervor and his passion is for the name of God. He is zealous for the, for the holy and righteous glory of God. He cares about the character of the man coming with the blade. He cares about his intent. And he says, this is who God is. 
One writer put it this way, Elihu's anger is in measure akin to the anger of God. God's zeal for his own glory translated into Elihu's jealousy for God's glory. We should begin with a passion for the glory of God. That should be our focus. That should be our greatest desire. Not what do people think about us. Not what do people say about us. But what do they know and say and think about God? That's the determining factor. That should factor into our thoughts about how we live our lives. How does what I do reflect on the glory of God? And he is passionate about this. He is fervent for that. Why is that important? Because your fervor will determine your focus. We're going to see Elihu's focus in just a moment. What you focus on is what, you will, what you're passionate about. Job is passionate about his sense of righteousness. Even, even when you're not in a time of suffering, you need to be passionate and fervent about the glory of God. Why? Because what you are fervent and passionate about before suffering will determine where your focus is when you're in suffering. And so every one of us, no matter what's taking place in our lives, need to have this fervor and passion. Would to God that we were as zealous and desirous of God's glory as Elihu is, that it bothered him that he said, I can't stand it anymore. I've sat back and listened, and I've heard Job defend himself in such a way and defend his rightness in such a way that it makes God look wrong, and God is not wrong. His... Fervor points us to his focus. As we would go through these next chapters, Elihu's focus is on the nature of God rather than on Job. Job and his friends, as they go through their debate, have gotten more and more Job-focused as they went along. They've gotten more focused on specific sins in Job's life. Job has gotten more focused on defending himself. In his His focus is on his situation, and his focus is on himself. But knowing God and the truth about him is where Elihu will point us, that our focus needs to be on God. If you are in a situation right now that is overwhelming, keep your focus on God. Keep your eyes on him. Paul says in Colossians, set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, For consider him, or looking unto Jesus, rather, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds." What is it that keeps us from being weary? What is it that keeps us from fainting in our minds? It is considering Christ. It is looking to Jesus. It is keeping our eyes and our focus on God. When our fervor is for the glory of God, then that's going to determine where our focus is. And many times our focus gets on our our circumstances or the things around me or what people are saying about me, what my friends are thinking about me and accusing me of, and I've got to defend myself. My My reputation does not matter. What matters is the reputation of God. What matters is the glory of God. And when that is the case, then that points us to God. So when our minds are fixed on God's truth, and we're focused on Him, it will establish the faith that we need. 
And I'm talking about a faith that not only trusts God to get us through, but a faith that can worship God in the middle of the worst things happening in our lives. The ability to worship in the middle of everything that takes place. Our goal is not just to endure and survive. Our goal is in the middle of all that's taking place to be able to praise and worship Him. And that's exactly where Elihu draws our attention. I want you to see this this morning. I'm going to point you to three truths that he draws our minds to. His faith is founded and where you can place your faith absolutely in. Now, I have to pause a minute and say that I'm going to move quickly because this is originally three different sermons. So you're going to get three sermons in one. We'll get out of here probably about four this afternoon. You can grab a bite to eat and be back in time for service tonight. Maybe we'll come back at a different time. We'll dive in a little deeper and go into these chapters. But I want you to see these three key things. Elihu's faith was based on what he knew to be true about God. My perception of my situation, my perception of what people think about me, what people are saying about me, that can be flawed. But who God is does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the unchanging God. What do we know about him? Well, Elihu's going to point us. Look in chapter 33. I want to look at a few verses here. First of all, you can trust absolutely, Elihu says, in the grace of our God. Look in verse 14. For God speaks once, yea, twice, yet man perceives it not. That's a great verse for you mothers. Moms speak once, yea, twice, yet the children perceive it not. You're in good company. You're there with God. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when the deep sleep falls on men and slumberings upon the bed, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. Why? That he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. That's what he's doing in Job's life. He's trying to draw out the, the purpose that he has in his life. He's trying to work against the pride that is residual, that even though Job is the Best around, there's still that pride in his heart. This is the work that God is doing. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed. Has Job had pain upon his bed? Yes. The multitude of his bones with strong pain, so that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat. He's lost all his appetite. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave, and his life to the destroyers. This sounds like a horrible thing that God is doing. He said, this is what God does to man. He brings pain. He brings some suffering. He brings even hunger and a loss of appetite, and he brings us all the way down to the pit. Why does God do this? If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand to show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him. Wait a minute. What he's just described doesn't sound like God's grace. And yet it is a tool, an instrument of God's gracious work in our lives. What is he doing? He says he's gracious unto him and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray unto God and will be favorable unto him. And he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto men his righteousness. 
Boy, that sounds like what we know the end of Job as well. But what is he saying about this? He's saying that God's work, God's grace at work in Job's life and in our lives, the negative work of God's grace is for the purpose of accomplishing the positive work of God's grace, to ransom and to redeem. God's ultimate purpose is to ransom and redeem our souls and to transform us completely into His original intended design, like Jesus Christ. And that's what he's doing. He's doing this to accomplish his purpose. This is the grace of God at work. To keep him from the pit, verse 28, and to give him light, verse 30. God's work in Job's life is becoming clearer as Elihu describes this. God is making Job aware of that root of pride that was in his heart. That's his purpose. That's what he's working One writer put it this way, Elihu does not picture God here as an angry judge, but as a redeemer, a savior, a rescuer, a doctor. The pain he causes is like the surgeon's knife, not the executioner's whip. God saved me, but he's not finished with me. His work of redemption goes on, and his grace works through events that are both good and bad to accomplish his purpose. God knows, as He is at work in us, to purge out, to, sometimes to punish our sins. Yes, there are times when I do something wrong and God has to chastise me. And there are times when God brings suffering to prevent me from doing something that I shouldn't do. And there are times when God will bring suffering to purge out the sins of my life. Why? Because God knows that a little bit of pain right now is far better than a lot of pain of the consequences of my sin down the road. Heard a lady speaking one time about disciplining her children, and someone had questioned some of the methods that she used and some of the things that she did. Nothing, nothing offensive or nothing abusive. But she said, I would rather my child experience a little bit of pain now and learn right and wrong than to experience, than not learn right and wrong and experience the pain of the consequences that will come later down the road, the much greater pain. And God in His grace is doing that in our lives. God would rather us experience some pain now than the consequences of our sins. He is at work and gracious, and His purpose is to redeem. His purpose is to ransom. And it's the same grace, some people have struggled with this, but it is the same grace of God that saved me that is at work in my suffering. And if I can trust Him for something as significant as my eternal soul, surely I can trust Him for what is taking place in my life. His grace is at work. And Elihu says, trust in the grace of God. There's much more in this chapter, but then we come to chapter 34, and Elihu says, look, you want to question God, you want to wonder about God, you can trust absolutely in the goodness of our God. Elihu asserts that we should still trust God during hard times because of two things. First of all, he talks about who God is, the nature and the character of God. He says God is just, God is right, and God is good. God is the only one who can be just, he says. And he begins to give all these reasons, these characteristics and attributes of God. He says God is holy. He says God is eternal. God sees all and God knows all. You have to be that to be able to be just and to be right. He's all-powerful, verse 29. 
God is good because of who He is. It is in His very nature to be good. And He will not and cannot act contradictory to His nature. Elihu says you can trust in the goodness of God because of who He is, but you can trust in the goodness of God because of what He does. He says He created us. He gives us songs in the night. Boy, aren't you thankful for the songs in the night? Have you ever been in the nighttime in your life and God brings a song that just blesses you and refreshes you? He says, God teaches us, and God will judge what is right. Trust in the goodness of God. Trust in the grace of God. And then we come to chapter 35, really over to chapter 37. And he says, you can trust absolutely, Job. And I say to us today, we can trust absolutely in the greatness of our God. Look in chapter 36, verse 5. Here's just a few verses where he touches on this. He calls him in verse 35, or chapter 35 several times the Almighty. He is the one that is all-powerful. Verse 5, chapter 36, verse 5. Behold, God is mighty. Aren't you glad we serve a mighty God? Verse 22. Behold, God exalts by His power. Verse 26, behold, God is great. What is he saying? He is saying there is none that is greater than God. And no matter what you are going through in this life, no matter what you are experiencing, there is nothing that is stronger, there is nothing more powerful, there is nothing greater than our God. That's a truth we can rest in. Sometimes you feel overwhelmed. When my soul within me is overwhelmed, let me run to the rock that is higher than I. Why? Because he's greater. He is greater. He is the Lord, first of all, Elihu will tell us, he is the Lord of the seasons of our lives. In chapter 35, he's going to begin, or chapter 36 rather, he's going to begin to talk about the different seasons. He'll talk about the autumn, the fall, He talks about the time of winter. He talks about the spring, and he talks about the summer. And he uses these things from nature to remind Job that he understands very little of what God is actually doing. It is a foreshadowing of what God is going to say to Job. God's going to call Job out, and he's going to say, who is this that darkens wisdom with counsel? Who is this that thinks they know what they're talking about? Job, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I did all these things? He's he's humbling Job. He's rebuking Job for his arrogance and the pride that's still in his heart. And Elihu does that here as he talks about these seasons. And as he does this, he reminds us that God is the God. He is the Lord of the seasons of our lives. We know that we go through different seasons. We go through times of drought. We go through times of plenty. We go through times of sowing and hard work and labor, and we go through times of harvest. We must learn to trust God in all the seasons of our lives. We must learn to be faithful and obedient in all the seasons of our lives. Just be patient. Remember that one season leads to another. And what you're going through now is just a time, and it's just a season. He's the Lord of the seasons of our lives. They that sow in tears will one day, when the season comes, reap in joy. 
Be not weary in well-doing, Paul said, for in what? In due season you will reap if you faint not. Sometimes you go through hard times and you feel like it's never going to end. You just have to say, it's a season. And God, Elihu reminds us, is the Lord of the seasons of our lives. But then he comes into chapter 37, and he begins to talk about the storms of our life. He says, Job, God is the Lord of the storms of your life. He begins, he starts in the early part talking about an electrical storm, about the lightning and the thunder that comes. Some people are still concerned and frightened about lightning. I remember when I was a kid, and they used to make you get in the middle of the house, get away from the windows. Don't be in any water. And y'all remember those days? You had to be real, real quiet. Sit, sit still and be real quiet. I don't think that had anything to do with electricity. I think our parents just were tired of us talking and wanted us to sit quiet. Concerned about it. A fellow my brother worked with one time was, had, had a few challenges in his life, and he came into work one day, and he was looking really, really tired. There had been a thunderstorm the night before. They asked him, they said, Red said, uh, why, why are you so tired this morning? He said, well... He said, um, that thunderstorm last night, he said, my dog kept me up all night trying to get up under my bed. I couldn't sleep. They said, well, why couldn't the dog get under the bed? He said, because I was under the bed. <laughs> there are times in our life that bring fear. There are times in our life that bring uncertainty. He talks about a snowstorm and the snow that comes on the earth. There are times in our life that while many enjoy the snow, if you've ever lived in a place where the snow never goes away, you're anxious to see the spring. But God's the Lord of those. He's the Lord of the rainstorm, the refreshing that comes and that provides for the ground. And then he comes to the end of the chapter and he talks about life's storm. I'm glad that he is the Lord of the storms of our life. It doesn't matter what's taking place, he is the Lord. And sometimes God calms the storm but sometimes he lets the storm rage and he simply calms his child. What is up for us to do is to simply, though we seek to understand God's plan for us may be to simply trust and experience his peace without ever understanding. Are we willing to trust God without ever understanding what he's doing? We will understand it better by and by. We'll understand it one day. But to put aside the idol of certainty, to put aside the idol of knowledge and knowing and understanding and say, God, I will trust you even when I don't understand. I will trust you. Why? Because I know your character. I know who you are. You are who you are. That is God. You are good and you are gracious and you are great. And I will trust in that. And I won't try to defend myself. I won't look at my circumstances. I won't look at all the things that those say about me. I will trust in God. Elihu's truths that he presents remind us to keep our focus on God. To keep our eyes on Him. It should move us to a spirit of repentance for the pride and the sin that remains in our heart that God brings out. It should move us to a place of trust. And above all, it must move us to a place to worship a God who is both gracious and good and glorious and great. Why? Because He deserves our 
worship. There was a young lady named Erin Browning who trusted Christ when she was six years old. When she turned seven, when she was seven years old, she was diagnosed with cancer. Four months after she was diagnosed, they did a second bone scan. They revealed that the cancer was gone. The doctors called the results remarkable, but Erin and her mother, Laurie, considered it a miracle from God. She began to share her testimony and share her faith with friends and with churches and with groups. Unfortunately, the cancer returned, and this time it didn't go away. The tumors in her body began to grow so large that they displaced organs, created a visible bulge in her body. They pressed down on her spleen. They moved her heart to the right, pushed her heart to the right, strained her breathing, breathing, made it difficult for her to be able to breathe. Her mother, of course, watched this. She began to pray, and she watched her little girl gasp for air, and she just wished, I mean, she prayed for a miracle. She prayed like any of us would for God to do what God is able to do. Friends and family would join in in prayer. Cures, possible cures would come and they would pray, pray for this to work and nothing seemed to work. After three years of battling cancer and in the last days, 51 days of struggling, the last thing she could, a little bit of air she had, she asked her mother, she said, please just read scripture. And as she passed at 10 years old, her mom was reading the scripture from Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. Just a few months before she passed, Erin had the opportunity to meet um, her favorite band, uh, Casting Crowns. Mark Hall, the lead singer for the group, was, was greatly impressed and inspired by Erin's story. And so he contacted, several months before she passed, he contacted her mother and he said, I just wanted to let you know that I'm writing a song that it was inspired by Aaron's situation and her story. Aaron passed before she ever got to hear the song. But the lyrics, like her testimony, have touched a lot of lives. Some of you know the lyrics to this song. Praise you in this storm. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day. But once again, I say amen, and it's still raining. As the thunder rolls, I barely hear you whisper through the rain, I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm. I will lift my hands for you are who you are, no matter where I am. Every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You've never left my side. Though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. The heart of a young lady, when, when her friends would come to her and say, Aaron, I want to have faith, I want to be like you, she would say, no, you need to be like Jesus. She had reached the point where she could praise God because of 